Well, hello, friends. This is Between Two Sundays. It is the middle of the week somewhere, depending on when I finally get to post (laughs) this conversation, because sometimes I forget. Mark Beresford is with me. Hello, Mark. Good to see you. How are you? Very well, thank you. I'm Mark G. And on Between Two Sundays, Mark and I chew the cud on the readings from the week gone, and we chew the cud on the readings for the week to come. Uh, in the revised common lectionary, digging and thinking and dreaming and saying things we never thought we'd say and bouncing things off each other. And you, my friends, get to be a fly on the wall listening to this conversation and going, either these guys are nuts or, hey, that's made me think of this. And if it does, let me get in early. Um, Send us an email between two, that's the number two, sundays at gmail.com. And tell us what these readings are saying to you, what they're revealing to you, what you've heard them say. Even if it's, we're not the holders of all wisdom, what was it Tony Abbott said? The suppository of all wisdom. We're not that. Um, <laughs> we, or maybe we are, uh, but we yeah. um, just want to grow. And we have these conversations. And if you want to join that conversation by sending us an email saying, hey, here's where we were chilling. Uh, here's what we were thinking. Here's what triggered for us. This is what stood out for us. We'd love to hear that too. How's that sound? That sounds really good. Great intro. Well done. We love those conversations. Uh, Last week uh, was the first Sunday in Lent. Yeah. And we had some readings, which I'm just going to lean up here and grab from my desk, uh, which were from Genesis chapter 2, Psalm 32, Romans 5, and Matthew 4, as the Sundays in Lent got kicked off, which technically aren't Lent. Um. Sundays don't count for uh, Oh, Lent, yes, of course. Of which course. is why there's 40 days and not 47 or whatever it would be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but what stood out for me from last week's readings that's still sort of hanging on uh, for me was this, this uh, challenge that came from those three questions that the tempter asked Jesus in the desert mm-hmm. from the Matthew 4 reading. Um, which, you know, that idea of am I hungry enough that I'm going to receive God's bread Um, and the way God wants to share that bread? Um, Do I believe that God is among me, among us in the world enough that I'm prepared to see God in places that aren't necessarily associated with religious power alone? And do I accept that God will provide everything that I need um, and that the needs are going to come via God's way of doing and being in the world as opposed to chasing after the things that um, I would hope that they would be. So those three questions, uh, which, you know, as we said last week, you read these texts after preaching them for as long as we have and suddenly you see something fresh and different within them and what they might mean for you. Um, for me, that was yeah, really encouraging. And, and the contemplation on those three has actually been really reflective um, mm. in this first little part of Lent. So that's me. Very good. Very good. I've been thinking on this um, uh, little statement from Genesis 2. Um the tree of the knowledge of good and evil Mm. Um, and this whole experience of of being a person who 
like all of us, um, knows on an experiential level um, both what it is to be good and what it is to do wrong. Um, I, I think I got really frustrated with um, those who interpret this as we are just evil. Um, very, very frustrated with that. Um, and at the same time, you know, while I love the idea of appealing to, um, you know, Genesis 1 as a place where all creation is made very good, um, ultimately, and we are part of that, um, perhaps a little feeling a little dissatisfied with just saying we are good as well. Um, yeah. I, I think there's something very insightful, realistic, um, experiential about saying um, we are both good and evil um, or we have this potential within us. Um, so I think I've been trying to uh, go about my pastoral task, I suppose, here in the church, um, being aware that both these things reside in all of us. Um, not just not just sort of pointing the finger at others, but actually trying to be aware of um, how these things reside and play out in myself mm. as well. Um, and and to uh, you know to state that God is good um, within that context is is not a statement that God is unlike us. Um, it's actually a statement that God is like us, that this this good that resides in us, um, and um, and comes out in action, maybe not always, but you know, is certainly a part of our human experience. Um, is actually a the rock solid foundation of that is God is God. Um, so God is that good that is is in us. Um, it made me think of I, I had a um, I had a lecturer a, a Hebrew lecturer when I was at school at Bible college, not that I learnt Hebrew at that stage, but um, he was he was a wonderful, wonderful human being. Um, and every now and again he would he would come and he would he would greet us by bowing. And um, which seemed you know in that evangelical context to be a bit strange. Um, anyway, somehow I heard that this was um, this was a way of bowing to the Christ in another. Um, it was a recognition that Christ is in the other. Mm. And, um, oh, gee, I've always loved that. And, and, and I think this good and evil thing has probably said to me, um, what, what does it look like for you to be one who acknowledges Christ in everyone, in every encounter, um, not just in those who are, you know, part of my inner circle or anything like that, but to be one who acknowledges that. And, and what does that communicate to the world? Um, when we are when we are people who are seeking and expecting to see the very image of God um, in everyone, yeah, uh, maybe this maybe this good and evil asks us to be a little careful around simply accepting everything, but it certainly is not a reason for us to dismiss the image of God in others. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, imagine 
and maybe this is what you're alluding to, but it's one thing to walk into a class full of, um, and I'm not suggesting this was the only place you did it, walk into a class full of students in a Bible college or seminary setting where you would expect that everybody there would be, Mm. at least if it was a Christian, seminary Christian. Um, But imagine walking up to somebody in the street and bowing towards them, not so much for their sake, but as a reminder to you Absolutely. that you are acknowledging the Christ in yes. them, not knowing who they are or what their beliefs are or where they're from or what their true nature might be, but acknowledging the Christ that is within them. Yes. I think there's something incredibly powerful in that. Idea. What does that? What does it do to us to go through the world? And look, I, I think you could probably pick a dozen symbols on this, a dozen little actions that might remind us that we are in the presence of Christ when we are in the presence of another. Yeah. I think that would be, um, I I think that's that's an amazing thing to do. I I don't know that I have, uh, maybe I do have some little actions that do that, probably not as deliberate and articulate as the one I've just described um, from that lecturer, but um, I think I do have some actions that, remind me that I'm in the presence of someone. Um, I, I, I'm here to be Christ, but also to see Christ. I mean, you know, I often carry uh, a little cross in my pocket. Yep. Um, and I know that both you and I, when we were in a chaplaincy setting, Mm. Uh, we would both wear a cross, or at least I know you, when you were in the Anglican, yeah, yeah. you wore your collar as well. And sure. we would say, this is not for you to see that I'm I'm not wearing this cross so that you see that I'm the chaplain. This is actually a cross that I carry. So every time I put my hand on my chest or look in the mirror or feel it bouncing when I'm running to the next meeting, it's reminding yep. me of who I am and why I'm here. But I think there's something inherently powerful about the idea of seeing someone in the street, greeting them and having a bow. Mm. Um, and having them see that, and either yeah. they could yes. either dismiss it, or yeah. they might ask you about it, and it's and it's it's making sure it's not from a place of of pride, but yeah, it's yeah. from a place of I'm doing this because it's reminding me. And if someone asks, well, why did you just bow to me? To mm. imagine, imagine how powerful it would be to be able to say to someone, look, I just bowed because this is what I do to remind myself that when I meet someone else, Christ is in them and I'm in the presence of, of Christ, or if you wanted to help them understand a better God, that God yes. is in them and I'm in the presence of God. And to have them go, you think that I'm yeah. God, that I have the presence of God in me? How how does that bless someone to have to let them know that someone else sees God in them because God is in them? And mm. you know, I, I talk a lot, and this is why it's exciting. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna steal this and use it for an Insta post in the next couple of days, because uh, uh, bear with me here for a sec. I know this is slightly off track, but the the idea that uh, we, you know, I'm all on this on this thing. I, I keep talking about that Jesus' message was about awaking us to the reality of God's presence, of the kingdom of God with us. And that God being present with us, that's pretty much everything Jesus taught, the things he did, the way he spoke, the way he shared, the way he cared, 
all of it was about revealing and reminding people and awakening to the reality of what is. Yes. What if we had an action like that, that someone, like I said, someone could fluff it off and not, oh, did he just spill something and just check his shirt? Or was he, what was he doing? Don't know. Or that they, if they did say, well, why did you do that? We could mm. honestly say, because I'm reminding myself that God is in you and I need to treat you as if I'm in the presence of God. Yeah, yeah. It's for someone to be reminded yeah. that they're made in the image of God and that God's presence is in them. That's powerful stuff. And it's, you know, you don't have to say any more than that or big note it or puff it yeah, up yeah. or preach to them. Yeah. But, yeah, and they might just, whatever, or they might say, you don't really know me then. And you could leave it at that. <laughs> but, you know, over time, that could really. Yeah. Something that a lot of people need just to awaken them to this reality that God does love them, yeah. and that God is with them. Something I, I love this idea. I, I think there are. Um, I think there are people in the world who um, get away with this kind of symbolism or artistic parable, if you like, very easily. Um, I, I'm always slightly careful um, because I think. Um, I, I think it can just be embarrassing for some people, and I don't think that's always constructive. Um, it, in my context, where I'm meeting new people all the time, um, my way of doing this, and it reminds both me and I think over time it reminds others, um, is simply remembering people's names. Mm. Uh, I, ask, I, I ask for the name of almost everyone who... Um, serves me coffee. Um, That's important. And, and and I'll I, I and I make note of it so that I can. Um, yeah, yeah, coffee is important. <laughs> um, Always look after your brother. So that I can <laughs> use it next time. So that I can use it next time, and it opens up conversation very deliberately. And um, look, look for me, it's not um, it's it's not quite as confronting as bowing um although i've got to say in some contexts yes i will absolutely do that um uh but it is my way of saying i see you it, it is and and often you know often in a coffee shop where, where you're being served or a restaurant where you're being served you're being served by people who don't have a lot of power um by people who are often unseen and it yeah. can be really constructive to um to go out of your way to see them and and well, one of my ways of doing that is to do my best to remember the name of someone particularly when i mean you think about the situation of a barista um not only are they often in positions of not much power and yeah. in positions where they're generally unseen they're in positions where they're generally treated by others who are probably on an equal power with them in every other way, yeah. as if they are subservient to them because you're making my coffee. Yeah. Um, and the yeah. way that I hear some people speaking to baristas and um, stuff like that, I just think. Yeah, yeah really, really sad. And, and denigrating to, to those who speak that way as mm. well as to those who hear it. Absolutely. I was quite surprised. I, I got to know uh, a number of the people working in one particular cafe here in in Gungahlin. And um, 
one of them in particular I got to know a little bit better than the others and she she eventually left it and I I said why you're so good at this you so and she said it's just draining it's just taxing um you know when when people come in and your coffee's not exactly right so so you're always under this um even even if it's not said you're under this pressure to um meet expectations that aren't even always articulated um yeah surprise she was very gifted at what she what she did she very friendly uh, you know um to certainly to me and to those around me whenever um, i was there she said it's just just takes takes so much out of me to try and um you know to do things again because they're not a hundred percent as someone who has had coffee really multiple so. times with someone who sends it back because it's not piping hot, yeah, embarrassing for me sitting there next to them, yeah. let alone for, yeah. 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 From the I, garden to coffee. How did we do that? <laughs> um, this week is the second Sunday in Lent, and our readings for this week are Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Uh, Psalm 121, Romans 4, verses 1 to 5, and then verses 13 to 17, and then John chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. You will find all those at lectionary.library.vanderbilt.edu, which is the Vanderbilt Library Lectionary, Revised Common Lectionary. Uh, and the cool thing about getting it from there, which you can get it from anywhere, I suppose, but get it from there, they have some great resources like art, uh, and hymns and prayers and colours and all sorts of stuff that you can utilise in your, um, if you use PowerPoints or make up booklets for your church or, you know, want to sit and reflect on some art as you're reflecting on these readings just in your own home. Uh, it's a fantastic mm. resource for those things. I, I find it incredible. In fact, last week's image of Jesus um, in the wilderness was absolutely stunning like terribly stunning if i can put it that way as in it was terrible um yeah, yeah. looking at this <laughs> depiction of jesus in the wilderness uh for 40 yeah. days anyway um but that's if, that's art is, if art is interpretation mark um you know that that stuff is doing exactly the same stuff as what we're doing here yeah um it's it's someone pondering meditating on scripture and you know, putting the things they see together. I, I nowadays um, almost always have slides as I preach, and I have paintings up there, yeah, um, from different eras, from different cultures, and I'm I'm constantly sort of pointing my congregation to this, even if I don't. Sometimes I do it very deliberately, and we interpret a painting together, um, but other times. Um, it just sits there. And because we've done it deliberately a few times together, people do it anyway. That's right. Uh, they they ask, ask those questions. It's a very, very powerful way of um, of um, meditating on Scripture, uh, which Absolutely. is interpretation. Um, well, that's exactly what the use of icons is about, reading icons. Uh, yes, yes, of It's about of course. gazing on them and allowing them to yep. speak. Uh, what is the author trying to tell me about what they've seen? Absolutely. Yeah. So let's paint with words. Genesis chapter 12. Because <laughs> yeah, that's what do. we do. I'm terrible yeah, with 
paintbrushes and pens. <laughs> I can write songs. We can write songs, though. We yeah, that's, true. that's um, true. But we're also writing with our words and pens. Use your words, Mark, my mum used to say when I was a baby. Um, <laughs> Genesis chapter 12 is that famous calling of Abraham to come away from your father's household and to go. And uh, it's it's interesting because for a long time I just saw this story as this is the first, uh, after a long time, this is the first time God says, let's set something up. Um, but I'm I'm not convinced that this is what it is. We're talking about Abraham, who is a part of his father's house. That's not just where his dad lived. When you're talking about your father's household and your father's house, you were talking about a complete way of doing and being in the world. That hmm. you, um, when you were a part of your father's house, then. Uh, your customs, your culture, the way you ate, the way you worked, what you did for a living, um, how you practiced your um, religion or, you know, relationship with God or the gods, uh, however you wanted to view that. Um, all of that was your father's house, which, by the way, just as a side um, note here, paints a very, very interesting picture on Jesus' words, did you not know that I would be in my father's house? Yes. Another time. So that's yes. your father's household, right? It's not the mm. place, but it's a complete way of doing and being. And God, this God says to Abraham, come away from your father's house to a place that I will show you. So you've got this place that you're living now geographically, yes. And you've also got this way of doing and being that you're in now based on what you've been brought up in. But I want you to come over here. We're going to go to a completely fresh place away from that where we can start fresh. So this in some ways is God starting fresh again. He started mm. fresh after the garden. He started fresh after the flood. God started fresh after the tower. Um, and now God is starting fresh again with Abraham. And so what's happened, I think, up to this point, Midrash, but what's happened up to this point is human beings, being human beings, have painted all this stuff onto God that God's trying to say, guys, that's not what I meant. That's not what it's about. I don't need this. You don't need to do that. Remember walking in the garden? Let's get back to that. Let's. And so, and, but human beings, being who human beings are, have just loaded it up and ritual and all this other. And we know there's ritual because, as we were saying earlier, when God says sacrifice your son, Abraham doesn't go how or why. Yeah. Yeah, he just yeah. does it because this is what he understands. He, he understands sacrifice because it's been a part of what his father's household was practicing. But God says, come away, and we're going to do this all over. But what's going to be interesting is this. I'm going to build this new relationship with you. It's going to be a little bit more intimate again so you can understand that. But there's a few things that go with it. You're going to grow under this. And you'll be blessed in this. And I, again, we talked about blessed when we talked about the Beatitudes um, a couple of weeks ago. Of course, yeah. And blessed doesn't mean I'm going to make you happy. And blessed doesn't mean I'm going to give you stuff. Blessed means you're going to have true joy because you're going to know what it means to walk together with God in that intimate relationship, just like the first people did. 
But then the, the, the cool curveball is, and all of the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. So as you learn to live this way, and as you are awakened to the reality of God, and as you start to start doing these things in relationship with God as God is, other nations will see what you're doing. Other nations will see this happening and they will go, we want this. Mm. And you will bless them and they will be able to come into this relationship with God just like you are in this relationship with God, Abraham. So this is a really important passage because it's a passage that establishes that God wants this relationship with humanity, but it's not about the relationship per se. It's about how that relationship opens up opportunity for others to enter into that relationship. It's not about this closeted thing. It's about mm. this thing that's there. And the crux of it, which you know, after we've talked about this a bit more and we relate this to the Romans reading for this week, the crux of it is, is that Abraham is asked to do this on nothing more than this voice. Mm. Faith. Mm. Yes. So there's this calling out to this new way of doing and being. And you're just going to have to trust me on this. And this is, this is interesting because... You know, in my teaching, I talk a lot about this awakening. I'll talk about this people awakening to the reality of God. And you and I talk on this show a little bit too about how people are, have become incredibly disgruntled with the way, not, not with Christianity uh, in terms of what I mean by that is following Jesus and following what Jesus has asked us to do because that opens us up to the being congruent with who we are made in the image of God and then opens us up to seeing God and God's kingdom in the world. Um, but the way that many places in Christianity have gone about making it exclusive, have gone about making it oppressive, have gone about making it, um, you know, there's all these rules and structures in place and boundaries and walls and hurdles and hoops to jump through um, and, and, and all this other stuff that is kind of like loading it back on you know, Jesus said to the Pharisees about you load up people's backs with a burden and never do anything to lift a finger yourself. Um, that sort of thing happening. Mm. Whereas a lot of people have seen that and have gone, I'm disgruntled with that. But when they've stepped out, of course, the people over here often will come against these people and say, what are you doing? You're leaving the reality. You're leaving the true thing. And people over here are going, I don't think this is the true thing. But you must be wrong because you're in the minority. Imagine how Abraham feels here. This voice of God is calling him and his family out of his father's household. And now he's going to have to walk away, um, leave his father's house, and he's going to have to do it with everybody else at home and in the community saying, you've lost the plot. You're on your way to hell, if there was a hell, um, uh, and they believed in it. Um, you are disobeying and being disobedient. Think of everything that's ever been thrown at somebody who said, I don't think what's going on in this particular way of being and doing of Christianity is where it's at. I'm, I'm going to walk away from that. All the insults and things that have been hurled at someone as they've not turned their back on God, but turned their back on what the institution is doing. Yeah. This is what I think Abraham is experiencing or could have experienced here. And mm. it would have been hard. It would have been very difficult because the expectation is 
you just carry on with your father's way of doing and being. It's just a circuit thing. You live that way, you do that job, you do this thing, you worship this way, and we just keep going on and on. It was a cyclical way of being and doing that people believed in at that time. And this God says, do it different. Hmm. That's hard. But he did it. There's a simplicity about this um, story um, to me. Um, and, it, and it comes out especially, um, well, I, I reckon it's around the, the blessed to bless thing. There's so much detail not here. Um, what, is, what is this going to look like? Um, how is Abraham going to, and even Abraham's descendants, even going to influence the nations of the world? What's that going to look like? Abraham, um, uh, I, and I think this is the point at which um, Paul sees faith in Abraham. There is something extraordinary about what he is doing here, breaking away from everything that's known um, on the hope that um, he will actually bless the world. And it's so simple here. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. There's so much. Uh, I mean, don't you want it developed? <laughs> don't you want Don't you want to um, flesh the story out a little bit? Um, but this is quite characteristic of Genesis. It's, it happens um, in the life of Noah as well. Um, where God gives him instructions and he just does it. So Noah went, so Noah did, so Noah built. Um, it's it's very, uh, uh, there's one exception in the Noah story, but um, essentially um, there is this very simple obedience, simple description of obedience. We imagine a struggle. Um, and I think a, lo a lot of pastors have sort of, uh, you know, we imagine the struggle that Abraham must have gone or Abram must have gone on, uh, you know, as he decides to leave his family and everything that's known. Um, yet yet the way the story is told is, is very simple obedience. Um, and there's something, there, there's something quite appealing to that uh, about that to me. And, and, and it's sad when we lose that in all the things we imagine might have held him back and stopped him and all of these kind of things, all the compromises, you know, we imagine him out praying to God, you know, just fix this and fix this and fix this, make this clear, um, you know, where am I going to end up? How's this going to happen? Uh, that may or may not have happened. I, I, I'm, so, I'm so all right with that. But let's at least acknowledge that the story does not tell it that way. Yeah. Um, the story, at, at least here, um, does not tell it in this massive struggle kind of way. I think Abraham does go through struggles later um, and he does have his arguments with God, but not at this point of leaving everything behind. Um, at this point, it's just raw obedience and you can see why um, this captures Paul's imagination um, so thoroughly and fully he's constantly calling us back to the faith of Abraham um, that and Abraham's faith is is used as an example of what it looks like um, yeah. for God to credit one with righteousness 
And in fact, Paul's reading, uh, well, the reading from Romans, which we'll jump over to now, if you like, verse one starts off with the very words, what then are we to say was gained by Abraham? Mm. Um, So so Paul is even jumping on this, um, well, very near the start of this this letter to the Roman church. He's on it. Um, What's what's to be gained? You know, Mm. Abraham leaves his father's household. Um, What's going to be gained by this? And what's what Paul's trying to point out here is that it truly was pure faith. That uh, you know, it wasn't that Abraham was under any law to have to go after God in this way. Mm. There was nothing structured that could have held him back. He, there was nothing that he could appeal to um, to say, "Oh, well, I have to follow then," because. God has said this and the instructions are that I have to do that. Uh, Paul is trying to say here that um, Abraham is pre-law. And I think, as again, we were talking about this earlier, we forget that. We forget Mm. that Abraham came ages before the law. Um, And so Abraham didn't live under law uh, and he didn't live under the structures of the um, Ten Commandments and the law that was given to Israel at Sinai under Moses. That's not the, of Abraham's time. Abraham's time is a far more simpler time where it seems that Abraham kind of has this option. And Abraham decides to be obedient, not because law compels him to. And as you say, not because God has been able to lay out a really good argument as to why he should follow and everything's going to be okay. But Paul's argument here is he accepts it just on faith. Uh, Verse 13, for the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith or or the justness of faith, another way to put it there. And so... Uh, a little bit further on, Paul points out that um, in verse 16, for this reason, it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, they're not out of it, they're okay, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. Now, this is really interesting because in writing to the Roman church, there has got to be, in this congregation, a mix of Jew and Gentile. Mm, Yes. And you can understand some of the Jewish Christians perhaps still wondering what's this deal with these people who aren't Jews coming in and being a part of all this. Um, Because at this time, remember, um, there there weren't access to Gospels um, running around. There was simply the teaching in the local churches, um, which some of which came through letters, we assume, uh, because we've got a whole bunch of Pauls and a few of the others, letters from apostles and leaders in the church to those congregations where they could read them and be instructed that way, and then visits from them, and then uh, possibly the training up of um, leaders for those churches to support those people in those communities. So there was no teaching of Jesus to do this, that, or the other. Um, outside of what was coming verbally or or in these letters. 
And so in order that the promise may rest and be guaranteed, um, it's not just the adherents of the law that are under this, but to those who share the faith of Abraham. In other words, to those who will simply um, have their eyes open to it and step out, even if their eyes aren't fully open yet, in mm. faith that um, this is the way I'm meant to follow. So there's, there's a really big challenge in both the Genesis and Roman readings put together, I think, about how we live out of our faith and what that actually means. It's mm. not that <clears throat> Paul is here knocking the law. He actually says that the adherence of the law um, have, have access to that grace of God um, and the promise of God. But he's saying that it's outside of this because as Jews, we can appeal to Moses, uh, which, by the way, is Matthew's focus in his gospel. Um, mm -hmm. But as Gentiles, they can appeal to Abraham, which would have really rubbed some Jews up the wrong way, I think, because they keep talking about we are the children of Abraham. Um, yeah. Um, but Paul here is literally saying, <clears throat> as Jewish, as, as non-Jews, Abraham didn't have law either. And so looking at Abraham as a model for how we live out of that call uh, is incredibly powerful. And, and seeing that while God is at work in other places, and again, we talked about this earlier about Melchizedek and how you've already got this priest of the Most High God. So God's doing something else somewhere outside of this story in Genesis that we've read today. God mm. is doing something somewhere because Abraham goes to this priest later on, meets him in his travels and brings a tithe and an offering to him, um, acknowledging him as a priest of the Most High God. So God's up to something else somewhere else. There's something else outside of the established story that we've got that's going on. We just don't know what that is. But what we have here is um, the encouragement by Paul to appeal to that story and to say, what does it look like? We don't have the compulsion to have to do something where it seems like we've got an option. We've got this call. How can we live into it? Paul says, look to Abraham. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I, I'm, always, I'm always intrigued by the, um, the term saving faith um, as though there's another kind of faith, um, the, a faith that doesn't quite cut salvation um here is here is abraham just believing um and of course acting on that belief um so there's something very consistent about this this is pointed out in james where um exactly the same passage is appealed to um to prove that our faith needs to act um is very intriguing that makes me think that um, this conversation is much wider. The use of this scripture is is much wider than um, than Paul, um, and it's part of the conversation. And even when James wants is, is frustrated by people who will say, "I just believe," um, therefore I don't have to behave. Um, he appeals to the same thing. That makes me think it's this is very very widely. Mm. Um, this is a very wide conversation in the early church. Um, 
But I get I get frustrated as I read through the Gospels, especially Jesus constantly affirming the faith of those who are healed. Um, as though there's this there's this other bit of uh, you know there's there's salvation faith and there's some kind of other faith that acts or behaves or something like this. Um, the New Testament to me seems to hold this much more closely together. Um, and there's that that I, I I have a theory that I think God is just looking for the tiniest excuse of faith. Um, and is deeply satisfied and builds on it. Um, I think God is constantly, constantly doing that. Um, and, and maybe here we here we see this in Abraham uh, or Abram, th- this little faith that says, well, God spoke, I'll go. I, I don't know where this is going. I don't know what this is going to look like. And in some ways we can think of that as big and dramatic. In other ways, it's actually very simple. Mm. Um it's very easy, which is which is some somewhere where somehow where where I want to appeal to this, the way the Genesis passage that we've just read um, is is written, the, the way the story is told. It, it is told very matter of fact, very simply, very Abraham just did. Yeah. There's something really appealing about this and it and it should kind of challenge that element in us that wants to make faith complicated wants to make trusting god into a, a complicated difficult thing um i wonder if there's you know something of a, a simplifying here rather than a complex you know making something more complex um that paul is trying to do and I think there's something uh, very sensible about us to to look for simplicity where we can find it, yeah. um, even if that looks like a second naivety, um, you know, as we've gone through a journey of um, of appreciating complexity um, and then returning to something that's much more simple. Um, I, 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 I find myself at moments... Um, thinking not only am I entering that space, but the congregation I'm leading is entering that space as well, um, come through um, a journey of complexity and not not playing that down, but, but acknowledging that as a step towards actually something that's both deeper and more simple. Well, that's pretty much what Abraham is getting called to in that Genesis 12 passage. His father's household would have been this rigmarole of religious um, (laughs) observance and stuff like that. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but Abraham is being called to a new simplicity because I think this Mm. God is saying all that stuff has got in the way of humans actually having relationship with God and understanding God in the way that God wanted to be understood. Or desires to be understood yeah. so come away from that and um we can make that take it back to basics take it back to this simplicity yeah. and i'm all for simplicity yeah. i don't think faith is technical or difficult we like to make it that way because yeah we don't like it for us necessarily well no that's not true we like it for us because it makes us feel like we've done something 
grace is obscene to human beings yeah, because yeah. if you don't have hoops you have to jump through, then I haven't owned it. I haven't bought mm. it. I haven't got it. I can't say, look what I did. But that's the whole point of the gospel. There's nothing you can do. It's just, yeah. it just is. And this is where yes. all of our clever arguments um, fall to naught against the idea that God has done this for everyone, for all time, regardless of who they are, regardless of where they're from, what culture they came from or whatever. Um, it just is. And it has to be that way. If we truly believe that there's nothing we can do to earn God's favour, then it means that the guy who grew up in the back blocks of Burma was a Buddhist all their life because that's all they knew, never came into contact with the Christian gospel, God accepts them. Mm. has to be true. Otherwise, yeah. you're putting in um, a step that requires you to have to do something. But that's that's not what's in the gospel. All it is is faith, and from the psalm, we get the reality of hope. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where will come my help? Um, this could be the cry of a Jew in Diaspora in Babylon. This could be the cry of a Christian who um, has just, you know, found themselves in the middle of you know, a Ukrainian Christian find themselves in the middle of war, or are you in anyone Ukrainian in the middle of war? Um, this could be uh, a Muslim in the Middle East whose village has just been bombed. This could be anyone. I look for where does my help come from? And the psalmist makes it clear our help comes from the Lord, the one who made the heavens and the earth. Why? Because God loves us. This God won't let our foot be moved. This God's going to be our stability. And this last part of the psalm is incredibly powerful because everything talks about this God being a covering. The Lord is your shade at your right hand, so much so the sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Um, that's some covering that blocks mm. out the sun and the moon. Um, and you'll be kept from evil. Now, that doesn't mean you'll never have evil um, encroach you. Because we live in a world that's full of evil. What it means is that we'll be able to look up and see our hope coming, um, even in the midst of that evil. And so, and the last part of the verse, the Lord will keep your coming, you're going out, you're coming in from this time on and forevermore. You can trust, you can believe, you can hope in this God. And as we were saying, there is no step, system, program, uh, course, spell, incantation, special ritual, nothing. God just is. And I love, and I know I've used this quote a lot, particularly of late, but Alan Watts put it so well when he said, it's not the getting of God or the getting of union with God that um, we need to be worried about or need to be concerned about. It's the fact that we can't get away from it mm. because Union with God is just reality, as we were saying before. We acknowledge the God that's in someone, the, the life force of God, the image of God, the spirit of God that already inhabits every single human being for the, because they're alive. They have to have that spirit of creation and force and love and power within them. It's the reality. Um, 
So for somebody to go, how do I get union with God? You just acknowledge it. And, and I know which that is, bugs some which people. Is faith. Which, which is, is faith. faith. Yes. And and the hope is is that when we say that and allow our eyes to be open to it, that we'll see it there. Mm. Um, so this is a beautiful psalm mm. that reminds us of, of that reality of faith and also of hope. I really like your reflection there um, on, you know, who can pray this prayer. Um, originally, we know this is one of the, the psalms of ascent. So it's it's prayed by pilgrims as they um, as they uh, either go to or depart um, the temple at Jerusalem on those, um, in some cases, maybe one or two times a year, they might make a pilgrimage like that. And they, you know, would recite these psalms, pray these prayers as they go up. But what, it's, what does it look like for us to take really seriously this Genesis reading we've just been asked to consider, um, where, you know, the traditional summary of this is that Abraham is blessed to be a blessing to all the, the families of the earth, mine is saying, which I think is even better than nations. <laughs> um all the families of the earth, what does it look like for us to um, look at our scriptures, look at our traditions, look at our practices, and, mm. and ask ourselves, um, how, how, what is the most, um, if God is like this, what is the most generous way we can share these gifts that have been given to us? Um, what, what is the most generous way, generous thing we can do with this prayer? It may not be that we can just explain where it came from and how it originally came to be. It may be that this is the type of the type of blessing, of covering, of prayer for another um, that we adopt for everyone. Yeah, um, I, I find myself um, look especially around the debate that's happening within my denomination around the nature of marriage and how broadly that can be shared, um, I find myself asking questions around passages like this one, like this Genesis one, but also around this this psalm. Um, um, if God has blessed us with such gifts as marriage and if God has given, um, you know, the Christian church uh, an important perspective on this, what does it look like for us, us to share? How widely are we willing to share and offer this gift if we believe it is a gift from God? Mm. Um, I think that's the kind of question we should be asking all the time about everything. Um, not how can I build walls around my faith so that it stays pure from all the families of the earth, but what does it look like for me to be one who is as generous as this God being described here in Genesis 12? Yeah. Yep. Speaking of generosity and surprise, I think Nicodemus is a very surprising passage. Go. Um, uh Nicodemus is, of course, one of the leaders of his time. Um, in many ways, the synoptics, which have been written earlier, have set up uh, quite a strong barrier between Jesus and the Pharisees. Um, yet here we have so early in the piece, even after Jesus has, um, in the Gospel of John, um, uh, 
already um, turned the tables in the temple. Um, here we have um, a Pharisee, um, uh, you know, this religious leader coming to Jesus at night, uh, you know, under the cover of darkness, the protection of darkness. He is being very careful here. Um, yet he is admitting that um, in the actions of Jesus, and we're not quite sure what these signs are he refers to, um, to what degree is it the sign of turning the tables in the temple? To what degree is it the sign of um, uh, of the water turned to wine? Has he heard about this? We don't think he was there, but has he heard about this on some level? Has he seen some kind of healings? Not sure what the signs are that he sort of refers to specifically. Um, but Nicodemus, of all people, has seen and acknowledged um, the source of what Jesus is doing. Yep. And he, he says, this comes from heaven. Um, and and for, for me, it's so it's so beautiful. It seems to me that there's there's a way of reading this passage that, you know, Jesus is kind of rebuking Nicodemus for not seeing nearly enough. Yet um, straight out of the, you know, straight out of the shoot, Jesus, I think, affirms what's happened in Nicodemus as he has seen the signs and it's created questions in him. Um, it, it may be secret, it may be small, it may be, you know, just an initial inquiry, but Jesus says this comes straight from the heart of heaven. This comes straight from the Spirit of God. And I don't know, I, I think there's there's a way of thinking um, Nicodemus is exactly the one who should see this, but there's also a way of thinking if you follow, you know, the experience of the religious leaders in this time um nicodemus is the odd one out yeah um, he's the one who shouldn't be seeing he's the one who should be resisting but or, or at least everyone around him in his position and you know we get a few other moments where we um where we encounter nicodemus throughout the gospel of john um I think this is a really surprising moment. And, yeah. and I, I, I wonder if, uh, you know, in light of this call to all the nations and all the families, I think we lose the surprise that one buried in religious commitment has actually seen God at work in Jesus. This is so tremendously hopeful. Um, because, you know, if there's anything that religion has the potential to do, it's actually blind us to what God is doing. Yet Nicodemus is this spark, this hope, and it's very young here. And you can see Jesus kind of nurturing um, this spark of faith, fanning it into a flame in Nicodemus. And it's very gracious and it's very patient. Um, it's it's extraordinarily beautiful to me to think that wherever faith is found, um, Jesus is there fanning it into flame. Um, even if it's, you know, even where it's among the 
you know, the um, where it's among the Jewish religious leaders of the time and where, uh, you know, just in the next chapter, we're going to read about the Samaritan woman where Jesus finds a spark of faith, recognises it and fans it into a flame as well. Um, it just seems to me there's something so wonderful about the Gospel of John that's affirming what we've seen in this Genesis account. A blessing for everyone. Faith can be found everywhere. That's right. And in fact, if you read it carefully, Nicodemus doesn't say, I know that you are a teacher who has come from God. He says, we. Ah, that's an interesting. That's an we interesting... know that yes. you are a teacher who yes. has come from God. Mm. And no doubt, by the sounds of it to me, there's been some conversation about this back yeah, at, yeah. Back at um, you know, Pharisee Central, mm. uh, where they've gone, this is dude, but he's taking it in a whole new way. I don't know if we, this is going to ruin the establishment we've got. What's going on? So I think it's interesting to ponder the idea that Nicodemus wasn't the only one who identified it. Yeah, but that's really We, as a collective group, no, mm. uh, and and responding to it like that. This is, to me, probably one of the most misunderstood passages. Yeah. Because yeah. everybody nails down 316. Yeah, of course. But when yeah. you understand it in its context, it takes on a whole new look. This is not about unless you believe in Jesus, you're going to go to hell. This is, we need to get beyond that. A hell, as we've understood it in Christian circles, I'm just going to say it. No, it's not even in the Bible. It's Dante's Inferno. Um, so you know that that's not even there. Um, B that you have to do something special and significant in order to be accepted by this God who apparently loves everybody, but He's happy for some people to rot and burn in a hell like that. If they don't. Um, no, let's get rid of that as well. So how do we understand this passage, and 3.16 in particular, when we, under we understand the whole thing? If you take 3.16 as your focal point, you miss the crux of what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here. He's talking about rebirth. And he's not talking about, you know, being a born again. He's talking about learning how to breathe again, hmm. learning how to live again, and learning how to see again. So this is not a passage of scripture that's about making a particular confession of faith as if doing that's going to change God's mind. What this is, is an opening to the reality to Nicodemus that in order to see what is already here and what's already available to you and what you already have is going to require you to be blind and see things different. I um, have just put on my website for Lent a study through the IMs in the um, the, the the Gospel of John. Mm -hmm. uh, it's one one per week, and I've just f uh, finished writing and putting up, which will be in a few weeks' time, the one on the door. So a bit of a prelude for those of you who, and um, hopefully not too much of a spoiler for those of you who are doing the course. But where Jesus talks about being the door just before this or the gate just before that he has a conversation with the pharisees over a miracle he's just done where he's brought the sight back to a man who previously couldn't see and 
He says to the Pharisees, because you think you see, that's why you're blind. But when yeah. you are blind, yeah. you will truly be able to see. And a lot of people misinterpret that as saying, oh, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, God's going to blind your eyes because you refuse to obey God. No. What Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is, is your blinkered understanding that there's nothing more than what's outside these parameters is stopping you from seeing what I'm talking about. Hmm. So until you're prepared to say, look, I see this much, but I'm, I need to acknowledge that I'm blind to everything else. And to paraphrase the words of the man, um, a, a man to Jesus about, you know, belief and unbelief, where he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. To paraphrase and spin that, God, I'm blind, help me to see. Yeah. Even yeah. though I see this much, I'm blind, but I'm open to the reality that there's more than what I can see. And the Pharisees, according to the scriptures at this time, many of the religious leaders around Jesus at this moment, and this, by the way, this is not a, a bashing of religious leaders in Jesus' time. You can understand why they were reacting like this. You can understand um, that they were um, nervous about what Jesus is saying. Perhaps some of them were reacting out of a protection thing for the people who were following them. Uh, perhaps some of them were a bit shirty because they thought that their whole system was going to get upended and they'd lose power and prestige. And we know that that was a reality for some of them. But to say that that was the reality for all, certainly the ones who pushed for Jesus' execution were probably coming from that angle. But there are Pharisees spread all over the place. And not all yeah. of them would necessarily have known Jesus. And not all of them, like Nicodemus, I think this is a beautiful point in case, would have thought the way along with everybody else. And so this being born again is about learning to see again. Jesus says in um, verse 7, which I think is uh, verse 6 and 7, I reckon are the cornerstone to the whole passage, where Jesus says, um, what is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I say to you, you must be born again or from above. Now, some scriptures have interpreted that as again, but the word is actually from above, be born of the spirit. Mm. And what does that mean? It means to, like a, a baby's, and well, to go on a bit, Nicodemus says, I, how do I do this? I can't crawl back in my mum's womb um, and you know, do it all over again, be popped out again. How do I do this? And so, you know, Jesus gives that instruction and and lines it up by saying, listen, Nicodemus, the wind of the spirit is going to blow wherever the wind of the spirit is going to blow. You can't tell it what to do. You can't tell it where to go. You can't box it. You can't contain it. God's spirit is God's spirit. And it will reveal Those to you. Follow this spirit will become like this. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And you've yeah. got to come outside of your blinkered thing, which, yes. to be honest, yes. if you think about a lot of people who are too scared to leave this hmm. because they just don't know what's out there. Abraham yeah. again. Yeah. Um, you know, what's out there? It's a faith thing to be able to say, all right, I'm going to breathe deep. I'm going to step off this platform and I'm just going to fall and I'm going to trust that God will catch me. And so many people have done this in deconstructing their faith, um, for all the stuff that's been put around them by others and the things that they've put on themselves to suddenly realise this freedom because they see, mm. because they've got new vision 
of what God is about and what the kingdom of God is about. And it's freeing. And the religious establishment of today, the Christian institutions of today, many of them are scared. Why? Mm. Because they're losing power. Because they're scared that their people are falling away from faith. Um, For exactly the same reasons I said that some of the Pharisees might have been angry and stuff before or scared and stuff before. Some of them legitimate, some of them not so legitimate. But that's exactly the same reason why a whole bunch of people are being called out by many in the established church for being wrong, for being heretics, for going the wrong way, when all they're doing is exactly what Jesus told Nicodemus here to do and be born again, to see again fresh, to open their eyes, to learn how to breathe again, that breath of God, the breath of God's spirit, which literally here is pneuma or wind or air, Mm. um, to learn how to be awakened to the reality of God around us, to learn how to feel that again. This is exactly the transformation that Jesus is talking about here. So to be Mm. born again isn't to say a special prayer or go through a little system or, or, or anything like that. To be born again here is lets you to say, okay, I need to look at the world with fresh eyes. <sighs> Give me those fresh eyes. Yeah, it's actually the experience. See, be prepared to see as you follow this wind of the spirit, wherever it goes. And again, we had a conversation about my journey, your journey, journeys of some friends of ours who yep. have gone through this um, and have been maligned for it. Mm. And it's been hard. Mm. But we go on. Because once you see, you can't unsee. Yeah. Once the reality's there, you can't unreality that. Um, it's it, it's it's bigger and brighter and broader than anything that you could imagine. And just like Abraham stepping out of his father's house and into this new reality of God, so too Jesus is staying. Step out of the rigid reality or the rigidness of what you see now and let God be God. And so when we hear God saying, oh, Jesus saying, God loved the world, that he gave his son so everyone who believes in this son will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus is there talking about following this Jesus and the ways of this Jesus, not exclusively, because Jesus is there in this one point in this time. Um, and those of us who have been brought up around these stories of Jesus, the reason people say to me all the time, why do you stay Christian? Because the stories of Jesus are the thing that, that that was the story in which my faith is contained. And it still makes sense to me to hold on to that story. Mm. I don't need to go chasing after another story, even though I see the truth in those other stories. And even though some of those philosophies have helped to color my faith in even more than just the stories of this um, first century Jewish rabbi um, and kind of what happened after that for a little while anyway, um, have have created for me in terms of how I live and how I move and how I have my being in the world. Um, but this perish and eternal life, and that eternal life word is so important. This is not about jumping into something so that you have life after you're dead and you'll live forever. This word eternal life, as we've said on a number of occasions, had to be about this quality of life. This was about living your life to the fullest. And when you embrace who this Jesus is and you see him doing what he does, 
you're not going to live a life that's outside of your created in God's imageness because you've got that anyway. You're dead when you don't live into it, but you come alive and have this eternal, deep, full, abundant life when you do because God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through his through him, which literally is talking about through his example. Watch how I live. Watch how I relate to God. Watch how I care for the sick, the poor. Watch how I exhibit love. There is the reality of God's kingdom. And it's as easy as opening your eyes to it, the simplicity again, opening your eyes to it, stepping into it, and then following where the spirit goes, or as the Celts used to call it, the wild goose. <laughs> yes, of course. The Celts lived this out radically, Absolutely. of course, um, r- reaching people that others seemed terrified of. Oh, and were maligned by the Roman church yeah. because of that. Yeah, um, that's right. You know, these heathens who don't and worship not- in cathedrals but worship out in the open. Yeah. Goodness me. Yeah. Um, as if God's concerned about that. Um, you know, so... I think the, the Celts we... are really the Celts are really interesting in this one, Mark, because um, the, the the whole argument with Rome, you know, at that point is Rome is saying everyone, if we're to be Christian, we all have to agree on everything. We we'll have to do exactly and, the same. The Celts stuff. are the Celts are out in this space where they're <laughs> um, they're out in this space where they're protected by distance obviously from that that debate for a long longer than other other places yeah um but they're in this space of allowing it, it seems to me allowing the spirit to lead um and they're not they're not afraid of that they're not concerned that it doesn't look like it's conforming enough to um you know to whatever the expectations are, that they are really out on the edge taking this risk. Yes. And, yes. you know, I, I find myself every now and again reading the Celts and thinking that there are elements here I'm uncomfortable with. There's a conservatism here that um, leads me to think what on earth is going on. Yep. Um, but that 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 reminds me that I'm kind of I'm not following them either. I'm not really I'm not really out to follow the Celts. I'm I'm out to to be blown by this spirit wherever it will lead, and to learn what that looks like, and to learn where I'm holding on too tightly to things um, I, I feel certain about or feel I need to be certain about. Um, but actually learning to let go. And I wonder if this is Nicodemus's experience that he's trying to describe here to Jesus. Um, he's, he's trying to... Uh, I, I just wonder if he's if he is this religious leader who has all the structures around him. He's seen Jesus turn the tables in the temple and now he's asking why these signs are speaking to him. Yeah. 
they, yeah. and he's going he's beginning this journey and I, I just I just love to see Jesus so gently getting alongside him as he starts this process of learning to follow the spirit rather than the Lord to and use this so important that you know I love how the lectionary creators have coupled this story of Genesis with this particular gospel reading. Yeah. I think it adds so much color to it, stepping yes. out in faith into something that's unseen. And that's what exactly what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Open, yeah. open your eyes. The reality is here. And you know that because you're a religious leader. You've experienced the presence of God before. There's no doubt about that. But get out of your box and see what else God's doing. And yeah. you've started to see that because we know is his words. Mm. We, we know that you are. Yeah, yeah. So we that's, know. Uh, yeah. That's that's very telling. Um that at least this initial exploration. It may be that Nicodemus is asking bigger questions than everyone as well. Um, sure. But he, and uh, he may have gone a bit further than some of the others yeah, who yeah. are saying they know, absolutely. Yeah. He certainly ends up in conversations with his religious peers as the Gospel of John opens up. Yeah. Um where he looks very much on the wrong side of what they're expe they're expecting. Yeah. But, Absolutely. Uh, you know, that's part of the journey, isn't it? How many, how many of my heroes, followers of Jesus have ended up on the wrong side of the church, the yeah. establishment? And I think uh, it's not so much in saving face or standing ground. It's in being able to admit, I think I went the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. And I need yeah. to follow that now. Yes, there's something um, strikingly humble about um, Nicodemus's actions here. Absolutely. Uh, his, his coming, because the, the likelihood is that he's a lot older than Jesus as well. Um, so there is there is a very, you know, if he, if he really is a leader of the Pharisees in Jerusalem, um, it's it's very likely he's vastly experienced and is you know significantly older and more experienced in the church in the the synagogue than um, than Jesus ever was. Absolutely, absolutely, faith, mm -hmm. my friend, faith. Mm -hmm. Second mm -hmm. Sunday in Lent, we had Genesis twelve verses one to four, Psalm one hundred and twenty one, Romans four verses one to five, and then thirteen to seventeen. And then John chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, all of those down below or in the show notes if you're listening and or down below if you're on YouTube, show notes if you're listening. Mark, thank you. Thank you. Great to and again, just a reminder that if you uh, want to join the conversation, send us that email like we said up front. We'd love to hear how you are understanding these stories and to share with you in that as well. Until next week, bye for now. See you again.